Good morning. Well, we are back in the book of Acts this morning. If you're here for the first time, you're so welcome. Uh, you might want to grab a Bible, follow along together. We're on page 1102, Acts chapter 9 this morning. And what we're doing is we've got a series we're looking at the story, 30-year history of what God did beginning on the day when Jesus addressed his disciples before he returned to be with his Father in heaven and the Spirit is poured out in Pentecost right through to uh, the end of the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. And uh, we're working through this over a number of weeks together and we're up to Acts chapter 9 today. And where we're getting to in the story is that the Apostle Peter, who's been a little bit absent from the story for a few chapters, he suddenly makes a, a reappearance and the uh, this is where the, the, the good news of Jesus Christ really begins to expand out beyond Jerusalem. The gospel starts to race forward. We've had little hints of that so far in the, sto- in the story. We've had uh, the evangelist Philip, who's gone to, uh, uh, to an Ethiopian, and that Ethiopian has responded in faith and then gone back home to Ethiopia, a sign that the gospel is spreading out to the ends of the earth. And Philip also has gone to Samaria, close to uh, Jerusalem and Judea, but a kind of a different people group. And, uh, but now the gospel is going to start running at full tilt around the nations of the earth. So let's read together. We're going to start at verse 32 of Acts chapter 9. Going to cover a lot of ground this morning. We're actually going through to halfway through chapter 11, but we won't read it all because there just wouldn't be time. But Acts 9 verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those, all those, let's note that all, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, or Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became ill and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. Should be a, put the map up, Louise, so you can get an idea. So, see Jerusalem, see uh, Lydda is what's now called Lod. Joppa is now called Jaffa. Uh, pretty close to each other. And the other part of the story we're going to be looking at today happens in Caesarea. So 54 miles by car from uh, Lydda to Caesarea. Not all pretty close. At that time, she came ill. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet, Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon, 
what we see here is Peter acting in considerable power. There's this amazing healing in Lydda, or Lod as it now is, uh, where a man who's been paralyzed for all these years suddenly gets up and starts walking around. And then even more remarkably, there's a resurrection from the dead in Joppa. And what we see in this little kind of vignette here as Peter's reintroduced to the story is a picture of a church which is spread out beyond Jerusalem. That's where the church started. That's where the first believers were. But because of persecution, people are scattered and the church begins to spread out in this region of Judea. And in some numbers, and there seems to be a really kind of vibrant community life. Just as you read these verses, I get the impression of kind of church life, which seems pretty dynamic, pretty vibrant, that there are real communities of God's people in these two towns, and there's some real stuff going on. There's some community, and there's some fellowship, and there's spiritual life. There's some dynamism in this place. And there's an unusual degree of spiritual power in which Peter begins to operate. And the book we're looking at is called The Acts, The Acts of the Apostles, or it could be called The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Well, here we've got the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through Peter as he, uh, by Peter's hands, these extraordinary things begin to happen. And as a consequence, there's great evangelistic breakthrough. The, the, the signs and wonders, somebody being healed from being paralyzed and somebody being raised from the dead are not simply good news for those two people although presumably they were good news for those two people, but it's good news for other people who look on and see and say, wow, this is true, this is real. What this man is saying about Jesus, what this community is living out about Jesus, it must be true. Let's get in on it as well. There's evangelistic breakthrough as a result of the signs which happen. And as I keep saying, as we go through this series, what we see in Acts is a description of what God was doing at this time, not a prescription for exactly how we should be and what we should expect, but there is a model for us here again in terms of a church which was dynamic and vibrant and expecting God to do amazing things, and as a challenge for us in these stories, that where we, our experience is not where their experience was, we should feel the challenge of that, and then allow ourselves to dream and believe what God can do in our day. Why not some miracles in our day which cause Huge numbers of people to respond yeah. in faith to Jesus. Yeah. Why not? Let's, let's see the model. Let's feel the challenge. Let's dream the dream. And there's something else here, which before we get to the main story, which is the part in chapter 10, we shouldn't skip over, which is that this resurrection from the dead happens in a town called Joppa. And Joppa is significant because of what happened in an earlier story that's in the Old Testament. There's the book of Jonah, a short little book about a strange little guy, Jonah, and uh, Jonah is told by God to go and preach the Ninevites, and he hates the Ninevites because the Ninevites are, are hideous people, and he doesn't, want them, he doesn't want to go and tell them the good news. He wants them to be nuked by God, and so when God says go to Nineveh, Jonah says no, and he runs away, and he tries to get on a boat to go completely the opposite direction, and the place where he goes to catch a boat from is Joppa. So God says go to the pagans, and Jonah says no, and he goes to Joppa in order to get away from God's mission and to get away from these horrible pagans who he doesn't want to talk to about the God of Israel. And then here, in this story, somebody, amazingly, is raised to life in Joppa, and it's from Joppa that Peter is then called to go to the Gentiles. And it's such an amazing contrast because it's like the story of Jonah is actually Jonah's kind of pursuing death in a sense. Here there's life which breaks out. 
Jonah doesn't want to go to the nations. Peter's about to get sent to the nations. Need to see the connection. Right, into the main event, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with another Simon, Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. You'll be able to find it because it stinks. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who is one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry. And if you've ever read the uh, gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Peter, Peter's always hungry. Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry. It's amazing how you go to pray and you suddenly start feeling hungry. I should be praying. I feel really hungry. It's hard to pray. I'm feeling so hungry. And he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And in the Bible, if things happen three times, it's a good sign that this is really, really important. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was. They followed the smell of tanning leather and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius, a centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, in this story, there's an amazing mix of what is kind of very mundane and what really is quite bizarre, very ordinary and the extraordinarily unusual. You've got the mundane, the ordinary. You've got this man, Cornelius, who has a responsible job. He's a centurion in the Italian regiment. So he's somebody who carries some authority, some power, a lot of responsibility, and he's a family man. He's living in this 
what seems like a large house with his extended family. So that's kind of routine, that's kind of normal. And then at three in the afternoon, he goes to pray, and that seems to be kind of normal as well. But then an angel appears, which certainly is not normal. And there's these rhythms of prayer, which both Cornelius and Peter seem to have, that there are points during the day when they go to pray, and there are rhythms of eating, normal meal times. But then there's also trances, and there's visions. And there are human messengers who get sent to carry messages, but then there's the voice of the Spirit who speaks directly and gives messages and instructions as well. And there's divine instructions about what to eat, and then there's normal human hospitality. It's like this mix of the very mundane and the very extraordinary. And what we see here is that there's really no division in this story between what we might think of as natural and supernatural. And really, thinking of things in terms of natural and supernatural isn't a biblical way of thinking. What this story shows us and what the Bible shows us again and again is that actually the whole world is God's. And the whole thing is His and flows and functions together. And there is this mix of what we might think of as ordinary and mundane and what is might seem bizarre and extraordinary, but they're actually all part of the same picture because it's God's world, and God works through all these things. God, God works through regular meals and regular hospitality, but God also works through angels and trances and visions. The whole thing kind of fits and flows together. And if nothing else, what we should see from this, those of us who are followers of Jesus, is that we, the people of God, we should live in this world in its both in its ordinariness and in the remarkable, and both of those things should be our kind of experience and our expectation. So we expect God to be with us and to work in the ordinary stuff, in your work, in your family, in your mealtimes, in your regular patterns of prayer. And we expect God to do things when, well, what happened there? We weren't expecting that, but these things happen. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. No one expects God to break in, but we should expect the unexpected because it's what God does. It's what happens here, this mixture of God at work through the ordinary and through the remarkable. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. And that's a breakthrough moment. We're going to come back to that. May I ask why he sent for me? Cornelius answered, <clears throat> Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. 
You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in other languages and tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in their way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is a moment of human and divine encounter for Peter and Cornelius and all the others in the house. This was probably the first time that Peter had crossed the threshold, stepped inside a Roman house. And it's something for which he's later criticized. Uh, Acts chapter 11 tells us about Peter going to Jerusalem to explain to the others in Jerusalem what has happened. And it says there, uh, verse 2 of Acts 11, when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. This was probably the first time that Peter had crossed into a Roman house and it caused a scandal. And It can be a little bit difficult for us to imagine just how scandalous that was and how difficult it must have been for Peter. Maybe get an idea of what was going on. Imagine that you were invited to the house of someone who's much wealthier and much more powerful than you are. If any of us had that kind of invitation, we would probably feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit nervous maybe. We'd probably ask the kind of questions that we tend to ask, especially as Brits, what should I wear? And... Am I going to know which knife and fork to use? Am I going to make myself look an idiot because I don't know how to behave in this kind of company? And we might feel a little bit intimidated. And probably there was some of that for Peter because Cornelius the centurion would have been much wealthier and have had a lot more power, humanly speaking, than did Peter. But it's much, much stronger than that. It's all to do with the power of taboo that... Peter was a righteous Jew and Cornelius was a Roman. And even though Cornelius was respected by the Jewish community because of his generosity and his prayers and all the rest. He was still alien. And there were deep-seated, kind of in-your-guts reasons why for Peter it would have been difficult to go. It's very hard for us to relate, really, just how hard it would have been for a righteous Jew to cross the threshold of an uncircumcised 
Roman. We can maybe think if we went to other cultures, things which for us would be really challenging, which rationally might not make any sense, but just we know in our guts we'd struggle. We know that if you, maybe if you went to Mongolia and you were served a bowl of sheep testicle soup, you'd probably really struggle to get it down your neck. And rationally, it makes no sense at all, because if you eat lamb, then why not eat sheep testicle soup? Rationally, it makes no sense. But because we don't eat sheep testicles in the UK, just the thought of it makes you recoil. It would be really hard as a kind of a taboo. You don't want to go and sit in a yurt and eat sheep's testicles. It's just not what you want to do. Nobody's planning that for their Sunday lunch today. It's a kind of, <laughs> ah, no thank you. And for Peter, it would have been that, but it would have been even stronger because this wasn't just about kind of cultural tradition. This is about deep-seated religious conviction that basically the, the Roman household was dirty, it was unclean, it was impure. Even though Cornelius was a righteous man respected by the Jewish community, it was a, a massive thing, a huge thing to go into his house. But Peter is empowered by the vision that he's seen This vision of the sheet coming down and God saying, don't call impure unclean, but I've declared to be clean and pure. And this leads to a dramatic spiritual encounter for Cornelius and the large gathering, as it says, that Cornelius had in his house. And what happens is that Cornelius moves from somebody who is described at the beginning of the story as being devout and God-fearing and generous and prayerful. He's moved from that, which sounds pretty good, he's moved from that to someone who becomes a baptized believer in Jesus Christ. And we see again in this story, as we keep seeing in Acts, just how important baptism in water is. When Cornelius and his household respond, when the Holy Spirit comes and fills them, the first thing that Peter says is, these guys need to get baptized, and he commands that they get baptized. Baptize them. There's no kind of, hmm, do you feel like you like to get baptized? How do you feel about getting in the water? Are you a little bit nervous about getting wet? No. Get baptized. It's a command. Because it's such an important thing. It's the sign of dying to sin and being raised to new life in Christ. It's a sign that you've entered the people of God. And what this shows us as well is that you can be devout. You can be Devout, God-fearing, generous, and prayerful, but that is not enough. You still need more. What Cornelius needed was to know Jesus Christ and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And there are all kinds of people who are devout and God-fearing and generous and prayerful, but if you don't know Jesus and the reality of God's Spirit at work in you, it's not enough. There's more that you need. It's an amazing story. It's an absolutely amazing story, this one. It's the point at which the Christian faith kind of morphs from being a little Jewish sect to something which becomes a globe-spanning faith, which it is today. It's the breakthrough moment. And it's just think how amazing, how remarkable it is. This, this story of, of gospel expansion, of the Christian faith spreading around the whole world, it doesn't happen at the point of a sword. I mean, that's amazing. Cornelius is a soldier. Might expect complete transformation in faith to happen at the point of the sword. That's how often faiths do expand. But no, it's not at the point of the sword. It happens by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Peter and his household, and Cornelius' household, this encounter of transformation. It's an absolutely brilliant story. Uh, but there's, there's so many layers to this story. And we need to see the prophetic significance of what is 
going on here and how this story ties into the promises that God has previously made in the scriptures which we call the Old Testament. Back in February, I was in Kathmandu in Nepal, uh, not eating sheep testicle soup, but being very careful about what I did eat because everybody told me I was going to get sick in Nepal. And praise God, I didn't, by the grace of God and paranoia. And uh, <laughs> paranoia sometimes is very good. <clears throat> Must wash my hands again. Um, and back then in our community Bible reading, which is something a whole bunch of us do, which is where we're reading the same passage of scriptures day each day and talking about that together. And just as a by the way, in the next couple of weeks, we want to do a bit of a CBR refresh. So if you are in a CBR group, we'll be talking to you in the next couple of weeks about we want to kind of give people a chance to move around groups and just shake things up again a little bit. But anyway, back in February, our CBR reading was in the book of Acts and in the book of Isaiah. And Gordon Cart, who's one of our elders based down at our other location on Ashley Road, he put these two passages together, Isaiah 25 and Acts 2, in a way which I hadn't previously seen. And it was such a moment of revelation for me. This is what it says in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And Gordon, as he read that and then read Acts chapter 10, messaged us all and said, look, the shroud and the sheet. And these two passages are parallel passages. They're they're passages about sheets and about food and about mission. And uh, let me help you see how how this works and why it's significant. So, Louise, next one. In Isaiah 25, The prophet, speaking the Lord's word, says, On this mountain, on Mount Zion, there will be a feast. You go up to the mountain. Mount Zion is the Temple Mount. It's the place where the temple was in Jerusalem. You go up. God's going to prepare a feast for his people there. Now, Peter goes up onto a roof, and he sees a vision of things to eat. There's something about going up. This often happens in Bible stories. You go up onto a mountain to encounter God. You go up onto a roof. You go up to a high place. That's where spiritual stuff happens. It's kind of, you go up towards God, and God is going to prepare a feast for his people. And on the roof, as Peter is seeking God, remember he's praying, he sees a vision of things to eat. Next thing is that there's a shroud or a sheet. I've got a visual aid today. When I was in Nepal, I felt so inspired by this passage, I just kind of preached it spontaneously, and I had a red tablecloth I found and draped myself in and was racing around the room. And today I've got a green sheet. There's a shroud or a sheet that covers and entangles people, and the imagery, of course, is that if somebody died, you'd wrap them in a shroud, but it is this kind of entangling sheet, encompassing. You're wrapped in it, you're entangled, you're held by it. Now, in Peter's vision, there's another sheet, but it's not a sheet that entangles and covers. It's a sheet that descends down from heaven, and it's full of things from heaven. Third thing is that 
This shroud, which the prophet sees, Isaiah sees, is a shroud that does represent impurity. It represents death. The people are entangled in death. That's the condition of the human race, God says through Isaiah. You're entangled. You're wrapped up in death. You're shrouded in death. You're unclean. You're impure. And then we get to Acts chapter 10 in Peter's vision. The sheet comes down from heaven, and the sheet represents not impurity and death, but it represents cleanliness and life. Things in the sheet, these animals, these birds, these reptiles, which Peter says, these are impure, unclean. And God says, no, if I say something's clean, it's clean. This isn't a sheet of death. This is a sheet of life. And then in Isaiah's prophecy, the people of Israel think that Mount Zion is meant to be only for them. Mount Zion is it's the most holy place. It's where you go up to to meet with God. It's where the temple was built. It's where the holy place and the holiest place is. It's where God is. It's where his presence is. And, and so Mount Zion is meant to be for the people of Israel. It's, it's their place because it's God's place. But God speaks through Isaiah and says, no, actually, this is about all the peoples. It's about all the nations. On this mountain, he will destroy the, sh- the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheets that covers all nations. Now, when Peter in Acts 10 is on the roof seeking God and sees this vision, Peter's only thinking at this time about ministering to Jewish people. That's his world. Those are his people. That's where he's comfortable. And so Peter's mission so far, he's, he's kind of stepped a foot into Samaria, but the Samaritans are they're kind of hated by the Jews, but they're almost Jews. It's a kind of like a half-brother type of relationship of, of hatred, but also proximity. But Peter's dabbled his feet there, but he's not really thinking about non-Jewish people. He's not thinking about anybody who's not circumcised. Now, again, that's weird to us. What is a circumcision deal? But it, it represents, in these terms, cleanliness, purity. And Peter's got no interest in going to, any, to uncircumcised pagans. He's, he's thinking more like Jonah. Not going to go to them. But God is going to send him on a mission to the nations from this rooftop in Joppa. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and he says this shroud of death, which is entangling the peoples of the earth, it's going to be removed. It's going to be taken away. No longer are they going to be tangled in death and impurity. And the sheet which Peter sees is taken back to heaven at the end of the vision. And Peter sets out with the message of life. And Isaiah, God promises to remove his people's disgrace, their shame, their uncleanness. And when Peter goes to Cornelius, Cornelius and his household are baptized in water, the sign that they've been cleansed, the sign that they have now become the people of God. And rather than being wrapped in the shroud of death, they're now filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Acts chapter 10 fulfills Isaiah 25. And the reason that happens, the reason this story happens, the reason that Peter fulfills what Isaiah hundreds of years before had prophesied is because Jesus has fulfilled all the promises that have been made. Jesus is the Savior who has come for all peoples. Jesus is the Savior who's come to remove our disgrace, 
to take away our sense of shame and uncleanliness. Jesus is the Savior who's come to defeat death. That this amazing miracle in Joppa where Tabitha is raised from the dead, but there's a greater miracle. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and so all who are in Christ will be raised from the dead as well. Tabitha's resurrection is kind of like a prophetic sign of what is going to happen to all of God's people, the resurrection from the dead, because of Jesus being raised from the dead. He's defeated death. The shroud of death has been taken away. Jesus is the Savior who has come to bring us into his family. Cornelius He was doing as much as he possibly could, humanly speaking. He was devout, God-fearing, generous, prayerful, but it wasn't enough. He was still an alien. He was still a pagan. He was still unclean. He was still outside. But because of Jesus, Cornelius and his household is brought right into the family. Jesus was the Savior who came in order to give us his Holy Spirit. What happens as Peter speaks? The Holy Spirit falls on these Seekers, they're filled, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter says, look, they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did. What's to keep them from being in? Quick, get them baptized in water. We've got to get this thing tidied up. Getting baptized in the Spirit, you need to be baptized in water as well. You need to get all this stuff sorted. They're part of us. And Jesus pours out his Spirit in us now today as well, that we would know the empowering of God and the certainty of faith by which we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. And Jesus is the Savior who's come to propel us into his mission. Peter wasn't meant to stay in Jerusalem. Peter was meant to go with the mission of God, and God's people are meant to go with his mission. Jesus is the one, as Peter said as he preached, Jesus is the one full of power who went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And what Jesus did on earth, now his people are called to do as well. We are to go around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God is now with us. God was with Peter. God was now with Cornelius. God was with us. Now, all all of this must have been mind-blowing for Peter. And it was clearly mind-blowing for all the other Jewish believers. That's why when Peter goes back to Jerusalem in Acts 11, there's these questions. What on earth, Peter, were you thinking to go to a Roman's house? But this had always been the plan. It's what we see there in Isaiah 25. We see it throughout the scriptures. It's always been God's plan to rescue people from all nations to call them into an experience of life with him, his family, empowering of the spirits, and mission to the ends of the world. And baptism in water and baptism in the spirit are the evidence that we have been included in the mission and the people of God. This is where it gets to at the end of the story as Peter's in Jerusalem, chapter 11, verse 15. Peter says, I began to speak and the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And this leads to praise to God. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to the Gentiles... Even to the Romans, even to the Ninevites, 
Even to people in Bournemouth and Paul, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Hallelujah. So, if you're a follower of Jesus, let's give thanks that we are now included in the people of God. That he, He's taken away our disgrace. He's taken away the sheet in which we unfolded of death and impurity. And he's declared us to be clean and blameless in his sight. So we come back into worship. Come with enthusiasm if you know Jesus because he has taken away your disgrace and he said that you're part of his people. We should pray that we would be obedient like Peter was. It must have been super hard for Peter to go. But he went obedient to the vision. <clears throat> and we should pray that there would be a response like that of Cornelius's, for willing ears, open ears to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We should give thanks that we are part of this globe-spanning, taboo-beating, death-busting family of God. We should ask to know more of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, the shroud has been taken away, and the presence of God has come. And we get to be part of the story, included in the family, and share in the mission which God has called us to. How good is that? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> yeah, Lord, do thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you for taking away the, the shroud of death and the sheet of disgrace in which we were entangled and you've brought us into life. Lord, I pray for those here who this morning haven't yet experienced that. I pray that, like Cornelius, they would have hearts which are willing to hear and ears which are open to you, and that you might even today cause a joyful response as happened to Cornelius and his household, a response of faith to you. Pray, Holy Spirit, you might be poured out on some today who never yet known what it is to be filled with the power of God. And Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you, I pray that we would rejoice with enthusiastic praise because of what you've done for us, for what you've called us into, for what you have now made us. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your great gift. Thank you that we're now called into this mission of going around, doing good, healing those who are under the power of the devil because God is with us. That's who we are, Lord. That's our claim. That's our mission. Lord, we want to step into that more and more. Ask that you'd empower us to do that in your name and by your grace. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.